0: turn with me now to the Old Testament. We'll be reading from Genesis 22 for our Old Testament passage and our sermon text for this evening. We're reading Genesis 2, verse 1 through 19. Genesis 22, 1 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord to us this evening from the Old Testament. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand, the, in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived. Throughout literature, movies, mythology, there's a, a consistent refrain. You find mirrors, whether it be a reflecting pool with Narcissus, where he gazes upon himself and gazes upon himself and eventually withers away. Or the magic mirror in Snow White, um, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. Uh, One such popular mirror is in the popular series Harry Potter. There's a a mirror called the Mirror of Erised, or Desire, where one gazes into this glass, this mirror, and what they see looking back is not the reflection per se, but that which they value the most. That's that what they desire the most. And I think it's a a helpful concept as we approach tonight's text to really think about that for about a moment. What is it on earth that we value the most? What is it that we treasure in our hearts more than anything else? The thing that brings us great joy, it brings us delight, it swells us with gladness, it comforts us when we're feeling down, it assuages our anger when we're feeling frustrated. The thing that if the Lord asked us to give up, we would feel a little uncomfortable. If he asked us to lay it down, well, we would consider not. We would even sin to keep this thing. And I'm not only speaking of unrighteous things that we might be thinking of right now, but even good things, even good gifts can become idolatrous and take the throne in our hearts. What might we see if we looked in our own mirrors? For some of us, I think it would be our job or our income, maybe doing what we love or what we find most fulfilling. It might be our house. Maybe we spent years developing a place that feels safe and homey. I'm tweaking it to have a place that is our respite, our little castle away from the world. Would we be willing to surrender these things? For others, it might be a hobby. That if the Lord had asked you to quit, you would feel very reticent. Now, others, I think, think of their reputation, their respect, their status among others in the workplace or in society or even here at the church. Yet, many of us find ourselves thinking of the good gifts. Our beloved spouses. Our children. These great gifts from the Lord. Yet... If our children were to approach us and say, hey mom, hey dad, I'm thinking of going into the ministry when I get up, we would recoil a little bit thinking of what that would cost them. And though we might think and hope, yeah, if we were asked, of course we would be willing, we'd give whatever, we'd sacrifice whatever. We know that it is worth the cost, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, yet weekly we know we fall short. We find ourselves choosing other things, seeing greater value in things that are not Christ. So as we read this passage today, I, I pray that you keep in mind whatever comes to your mind, whatever the Holy Spirit might bring to bear on your soul. For the word of God here is, at many times, a mirror of sorts. It exposes the things that sit on the throne of our hearts as idols. It exposes the things that sit in the place of God. So what do we have as we, we turn to and look at, <coughs> excuse, <coughs> at uh, chapter 22, verse 1? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We have right from the get-go, the author and the narrator is pulling our attention back. They've reached a climatic moment in some ways in the Genesis narrative, reminding us of the great lengths Abraham has traveled to get to this point. All the way back in chapter 12, Abraham is called in a similar fashion. He's called to go, to leave his country, to leave his kindred to a land that God is going to show him. Promise that he will be made a great nation. After that, you know, he encounters Pharaoh and he lies and says that he's related. And this is his sister about Sarah and she almost takes him as a wife. And there's this constant, what's going to happen? All the while, the progressive reality that Abraham and Sarah are getting older, they're getting older, they're getting older. As the years pass, as these events cascade, they're getting older, and yet there is no real heir. There is no one to inherit and to fulfill the promises that the Lord had made and was making to Abraham. So what happens just prior to our narrative today? Well, Sarah and Abraham have a fantastic idea, something not uncommon in the culture, but taking matters into their own hands Sarah gives Abraham Hagar, her maidservant, to have a son and an heir for Abraham. Well, this happens, and after years of silence, God comes and instructs him, No, your son, the heir of the promise, the heir of the covenant is not Ishmael, but is going to be Isaac, a son that I will bring about from the dead womb of your wife. Yes, after years of silence in the camp, after years of barrenness, after years of waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping that an heir would come, Finally, there will be laughter. There will be Isaac breaking the silence in the camp. We find that he comes. The Lord is faithful to his promise again and again. Yet there's more laughter. There's a mocking laughter heard in the camp. A laughter that is between Ishmael and Hagar and Isaac. And what happens, Sarah says, we'll dismiss them, send them away. And just prior in 21, we see this narrative where they are dismissed. And the Lord saves Ishmael at the last moment, appearing an angel of the Lord appearing and saying, here's some water, here's a well, drink and live. So after all this time, we finally get to this place, Abraham. There's peace within the camp. The Lord has fulfilled his promise in their old age. All of their waiting has come to an end, seemingly. They have a child. They're prospering as a people. They have great wealth and renown. And the story we would think would end here with them all living happily ever after, them tasting the promise like any good movie, any good plot or book, when you think you've reached the climax, when you think you've reached the end, the author throws a curveball, they spin something, there's a new plot twist that catches us off guard. Abraham is tasting this blessedness, and then he is tested. Will he worship the promise that he has received or the promise maker? Like we've heard over and over the last year with Job when Satan cried that, well, Job only blesses the Lord because he has such a blessed life. If you were to remove those things, he would curse Yahweh, he would curse the Lord. There is a testing. Abraham is put to the test. And it's, it's kind of like uh, the emergency broadcast system in some ways, where there's this blaring declaration of, hey, it's a test, it's a test, it's a test. You know, don't, just, this is a test, don't freak out. But here in the narrative, the narrator starts off right out the bat. After these things, God tested Abraham. He's letting us know this is a test. Don't be confused about what's going on. Don't be given to dismay about what you might read because it gets a little confusing or maybe it, it pulls out our emotions in weird ways. But he tells us up front, God is testing Abraham. Unfortunately, Abraham doesn't have a TV or radio. He doesn't get the emergency broadcast system. He doesn't know that he's being tested. He misses this announcement. So as we, we conceive of this, as we look at this test that God sets before Abraham, let's, let's keep in mind something I think really important that's easy to, to miss. And that's that God doesn't test or tempt us to sin. His testing is to reveal the quality of our faith. Here we find, just like we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in the garden with Adam, a special test, a special place in command where there is a unique command, exceptional, very different to the pattern that God normally commands, Where he says, sacrifice your son to me. Sacrifice your son to me as a burnt offering. An offering where you as the one sacrificing will be consecrated. What does Abraham do? Well, he responds as any good servant does when their king beckons. He says, here I am. Here I am. And then God gives a cascade of three simple commands that I can only imagine tumbled his mental world and shattered it in an instant. Take your son, your only son Isaac whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Take your son, go, and offer him up unto death as an offering. What's really striking in that, and I've read it a few times, is what do you see repeated over and over, and you'll see throughout this narrative, is that word son. Son, son, son. In excruciating detail almost, the passage is highlighting this. This promised son, this sea, this long-awaited one. Here he says, Take your son, but not just your son. This is Abraham's only son. Ishmael had been dismissed in the previous chapter. Isaac is now the only son, the only heir, the son of promise, the son of the covenant, the only son. Not only that, he then says, the son whom you love. This is the son whom you delight in. That severity. I know hits in the chest if we put ourselves in the shoes in this familiar story. The one you delight in, the son you love, the one who is the answer to the hundred years of waiting, that son. The son that I gave you, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Here we find, though, if we we press the Hebrew language a little more, there's more, though, than just this effective, emotive dimension to it. Because certainly it was that. It's not less if God tells you to kill your son and sacrifice him. If we look at those words of only and the one whom you love, They're they're learned. They're legal terms. Legal terms often used of connoting a special family status. For Isaac is the only, meaning he is the sole inheritor. He's the only one that has the right to inherit the promise to all that Abraham has. Likewise, the term of beloved is the same one used in the Old Testament, denoting a husband's favorite wife. This is a special and a cherished term. So if we conceive of that, the the scandalous nature of this passage isn't even ethical. It isn't even, how could God ask for human sacrifice? How could God ask for a father to sacrifice his son? But the real scandalous nature of this passage is covenantal. It is that God himself, seemingly his character, is what's at risk. His promissory, faithful character seems, at first, at stake here. This is the heir to the covenant, the one God previously swore. Through Isaac, I will bless you. Through Isaac, I will make you a great nation. And now he's to be put to death. The line that is to be for all of mankind's hope for redemption. What God is asking here seems on the surface to break the promise. God swore that he would make him a great nation. So I'm sure Abraham is reckoning with this reality as he hears this command. If Isaac were to be no more... God is a covenant breaker it on the surface, for he swore. But then we know this isn't. And the author of Hebrews picks this up, thankfully, and and helps us a little in uh, Hebrews 11, where he says, By faith, Abraham was tested. When he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, as in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham here is demonstrating incredible faith, incredible obedience, despite moments prior with Pharaoh or Abimelech, despite moments with Hagar of maybe doubt. And here we see the amazing faith of Abraham put on display the same faith from his call in chapter 12, this model of faith, this exemplar. Now, it doesn't mean that Abraham here is justified by faith by any means. Paul thoroughly argues that he is justified by grace. He is justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. But as we read in James, where he says, bluntly, was Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So we see that the scripture, it's not contrasting here. It's not contrasting itself and in competition as if they're competing and saying different things, saying the same thing differently. But what James is really getting at is that, or sorry, while Paul is outlining his judicial status, his status, James is really highlighting that he is vindicated. He is shown to be righteous. He is seen righteous. He's proven the reality of his incipient, his underlying faith. So as we consider this, this great example of work, this great example of faith in Abraham, let us look further For He really becomes here the surety of our blessing. He, in his obedience, earns the typological old covenant of kingdom for Israel. Not their salvation, for we get that in Christ, but through his obedience, he earns the old covenant kingdom. So as the narrative presses on, excuse me. narrative presses on in verse 3 we see early the next morning abraham didn't wait a full day early the next morning without postponing without delay he prepared for the journey i see him go through the preparations for the journey and it's really the the final part of this description that i feel like catches us and sticks in our throats as we read it oh he gets up he saddles his donkey he takes two young men and his son oh And then he cuts the wood for the burnt offering. This is no mere camping trip. He's cutting the wood in preparation for what he knows is going to occur. Without delay, he is leaving to sacrifice his son. What a journey that had to be. What a journey. Three days of traveling to a destination, knowing and carrying this command of the Lord in your heart. Of internal wrestling and reassuring himself, I'm sure, in the promise, and the truth of God's promise... I am positive that Abraham had to, as he walked, replay the events of his life and his covenant relationship with Yahweh. All the times that God had been true to his word and all the times that Abraham had failed to believe in the fallout of those situations, knowing that he must trust the Lord. And I don't say that to over-psychologize Abraham in this narrative, but to draw out that this is a familiar story for all of us here. Most of all of us have heard this story countless times, and it's easy to view it that way, as a character in a story and not a real-life human being with a soul, with emotions, with familial connections. This is a real person with real fears and real faith. John Calvin puts it this way and points out this harsh reality in the scene where he says, God does not require Abraham to put his son immediately to death, but compels him to revolve this execution in his mind for three whole days that in preparing to sacrifice his son, he may more severely torture his own sense. Abraham revolving this execution for three days as they journeyed, but being faithful to the Lord, going without delay, going without question, without hesitancy in the narrative. We can understand this for certainly anyone here who has felt the loss and the sting of loss of a child or undergone such suffering can tell you that Abraham is no mere passive observer. He's not just suffering on the surface. It is a deep suffering. But here he's not to just watch. He's to be the active instrument. He's to take up the knife. He's to take up the torch. It is a bloody, gory, painful sacrifice. Yet, he, Abraham, like those of us who might have suffered great loss in this life, are granted at the same time a unique insight and solidarity with the sorrow of our Heavenly Father, the one who gave up his own son to death. To know and enjoy God is our highest end, so what a gift for Abraham and for us to enjoy, that we can know God in this way. But any sorrow, whatever it may be, that he endured for three days of sleepless nights, thinking of his precious son, his most treasured love, everything that he held dear, For for us often in our modern society In our churches here Reformed church here in Escondido In America It's easy to follow Christ And to obey the commandments of the Lord It's easy for the crowds When there was bread and fish galore To follow Christ When there was status and prestige but When obedience caused suffering When obedience seemed to cost Then we often turn and leave Declaring yes this indeed is a hard teaching But Abraham doesn't Abraham like the disciples responds Where else would I go? You alone, Lord, have the words of life. As Hebrews echoed, he knew that even if God had to raise Isaac back from the dead, he knew God would provide. So as Abraham steals himself for what is to come, we see in verse <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 4, he lifts up his eyes and sees the place from afar. <clears throat> and he says to the men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He sees Moriah, the place where this dreaded deed is to be done. What's amazing is God, in His infinite sovereignty and His amazing orchestration of all things, ordained this mountain for the act. A mountain that is very possibly—it's debated, but it seems probable—could be the very same mountain where later Solomon's temple was built, and thousands of sacrifices would have been made in the Levitical system of atonement. It is this mountain that he is to go to, and though we can't know for certainty. We do know it's in the close enough vicinity in the same place where a different father years later would offer his son at the hill of Golgotha. As Abraham looks at this mountain, he dismisses his servants. These background characters that really serve no purpose outside of drawing us further into Abraham and Isaac's isolation, they fall away. The periphery fades to black and they are isolated. It's just the sun and the Father, and the Lord, trekking up the mountain. To intensify the scene even more, he takes the very wood that is to be laid on the sacrifice, Abraham being fairly old at this point, and lays it on Isaac, his son. The son is going to carry his own altar. He's going to carry his own altar up the mountain to the place of his sacrifice. The father, Abraham, well, he's carrying the instruments that will put Isaac to death he carries the pocket knife and the torch these commonplace items that have very little weight I'm sure had an emotional weight of unfathomable proportions and then Isaac, our our precious Isaac and son, whose name means laughter probably asked one of the hardest questions he says, father, Abraham responds again, here I am, my son and he points it out he says, behold We've got the fire, we've got the wood, but I'm noticing uh, an absence, a lack of something. You've taught me well of how to worship our God. I know how this works. We're missing an important part of the sacrifice. Where's the, where's the sacrifice? Where is the lamb? A few questions have probably held the weight that that did, but regardless, Abraham unwavering faith and trust in the promise maker and the promise keeper who time and time again had proved himself faithful says god will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son god will provide for himself a burnt offering and then they go up they go up together to this mountain of death and bloodshed knowing that God is going to provide the offering. At some point between the narrative telling us to go up and what we immediately see next, which is when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, I'm sure there had to be a very interesting conversation of secret and precious words between them that do not matter to us. But when they arrive, the narrator slows us down Well, at the same time, flooding us time after time with these words, these verbs, matching the pace of the heartbeat of Isaac, I'm sure, where it says he built the altar there. He lays the wood in order. He bounds Isaac, his son, and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son the son who had been figuratively dead in the heart of Abraham for 3 long days was now physically going to reflect that reality the last time abraham had drew a knife to lay flesh to lay to the flesh of his beloved son was after his birth when obeying the lord's commandment he circumcised him he put the blade in an act associated with cutting off an act associated with judgment illustrating the death curse that awaited those who break god's holy covenant This time he raises the knife again in obedience to the Lord. He raises the knife again. If this was a good TV show, we would end here in the narrative and say, Well, next week you can figure out how this tension is resolved. Bite your nails. Hang on to the cliff. But no. Here are the words that seem beautiful to us. I'm sure even more beautiful to Abraham. The angel says, angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. said, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Praise our God, our great Father in heaven, appearing in the nick of time in the angel of the Lord and saying, I have seen you, I have seen that you fear God. You've passed the test. The test was to see if you feared me. And yes, you have feared me. I see. Here we see something interesting. There's a switch in in the Hebrew word. You know, in the previous chapter, when when Ishmael was about to die, an angel appeared. When another one of Abraham's children was about to die, an angel appeared, and it says, Elohim, God, revealed himself, and the boy was saved. The seed was saved. But this time... For the first time in this narrative, it is different. For the promise seed, for the heir of the covenant, it says that Yahweh, the covenant name for God, appears. It is him who raises Isaac from the death and moves him from the altar. It is the God of the promise to Abraham, where he declares, I know that you fear me. You did not withhold your son. Your very, your only son, your sole heir to the promise. You did not withhold. Abraham, I'm sure, with great relief and exhaled breath looks around and says and sees a ram the substitution that he had promised isaac just a few verses prior that would come he looks around and in celebration sees that the lord has done it he sees that there is a substitution and not only that he then sacrifices this ram and then names the mountain the lord sees the lord will provide And it says, from that day forward, it was a proverb, that on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This ram that was provided by the Lord took the place of Isaac upon the altar. The precious son of the promise was unbound and set free to rise up off the altar of death into the life that the substitution provided for him. This ram illustrates, in a lot of ways, the amazing grace of our God. Uh, theologian Carl Truman articulates this grace as God's violent and raw and bloody response to the violent lethal rebellion that is sin. And that's what it is. This way of death, the way of the cross was the way to salvation. There must be bloodshed, there must be death. And that is what we see even in the New Covenant, is those who undergo the death judgment that rise with their substitution, is those who undergo baptism, is those who undergo. Dying to the old man, being raised to newness in the life of Christ. We rise in living priestly consecration. Dedicated to service for our God. Now even according to Romans, to put ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice unto God. For notice that the test though doesn't end simply with the substitution. Doesn't end with or with Isaac just getting off and Abraham unbinding him and saying, whew, pass the test, this is great. No, blood is required. There's still needed to be death. Isaac's redemption couldn't occur without it. The only thing that changes is the victim. Finally, then, in our narrative, the Lord calls again from heaven. It says he swore an oath by himself, an oath that he alone would perform the fullness of the covenant promises. These covenant promises, which culminate in the Messiah Christ himself, he alone will fulfill them. Uh, OPC minister Meredith Klein observed about this oath that this is the oath where the Lord swears by himself in the promise, echoing the very agreement that the Father, Son, and Spirit already had in eternity. This was an oath that God the Father would not spare his own son, but deliver him as a substitution on our behalf. He would traverse the mount of death and suffering and make it into a place of life and resurrection. And this is where our story Leads us, and it's clear in the light of the gospel, in the light of Christ. As the promised son was to be sacrificed, so is the true Isaac. So is Christ, the sacrificial lamb of who John the Baptist declares when he first sees, Behold, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. Just as the patriarch Abraham had to endure the loss of his son for three days in the clutches of death, so too the father endures the son dying on the cross, being buried for three days the light of life, himself tasting death. As Isaac, the only son, the beloved son, the most precious son, the sole inheritor of the promise, how much more so the only begotten son of God, the promised seed who for alone can sin for atone. This is the promised son. And Isaac had to carry his own tree up the mountain of death And Abraham, the instrument, so Christ carried his cross to the very place, silent before the shearers, like a lamb led to slaughter. Just as Isaac and Abraham prayed, they're humans. It doesn't tell us directly the narrative, but they're humans, and I guarantee, just putting myself in shoes as a father, praying, Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, this not let me sacrifice my son, please, you have to raise him from the dead, fine, but if there's any way... Similar to how Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane prays at the moment of testing and says, Father, if there's any other way, please, but my, your will be done. And the beautiful reality is, is that when Christ prays for any other way, please let this cup pass, God doesn't provide a substitute, God doesn't provide another way. The Lord is able to answer the prayer of Abraham and Isaac. The Lord is able to answer our prayer where we belong on that altar because he didn't for the Lord. The Lord is the one that is chosen, appointed, predestined, ordained to be the substitute, the great sacrifice that will atone for our sins. For Isaac, for us, we all deserved a bloody death. A bloody death is consequence for our violent, lethal rebellion against our holy God. We deserve to be bound. We deserve to be laid to an altar, but the angel the Lord appeared. Christ came at just the right time in the fullness of time and took our place on the altar, saying, I die that you might live. I fulfill the law. I am spotless, sinless. It is my life for my sheep. Just like Abraham, where God the Father did not spare and did not withhold his son, God the Father gave us Christ. So beloved, as you consider the cost of discipleship, as you consider and reckon with what the scriptures require of us, of you, as you struggle to willingly submit to what the Lord commands, know that the cost is paid in full. Know that it has been paid. Everything else is lost in comparison. Christ paid it all for us. This gospel is true. Yet the Lord beckons us still. He says, take up your cross. He says, Follow me. Be willing to leave Father. Be willing to leave mother. The land that you call home. Swear allegiance to me and my kingdom. Become a traitor to the enemy and his kingdom of this world. Pray for those who hate you and for those who murder you. Hold with open hands all that the Lord has given you. He is our great treasure. He's our pearl beyond price. So our faith beckons us out of gratitude for what Christ has done, out of gratitude for his sacrifice and his atoning work, to respond with ordinary obedience to God's word. By our obedience, we earn nothing, just as Abraham did, But through our union with Christ, we were able to join in his sufferings, join in his sacrifice and in his glory. For our great Lord took our place on the altar. And praise God, as we heard this morning, he didn't remain there. Unlike Rome, our God is not still on the altar. He's not being re-murdered day in and day out as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But rather, he's seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He sacrificed once. It was good enough. It was perfect and he sat down. And we were waiting for his return. We follow and serve the victorious risen Christ. The Lamb who was slain, that now sits upon the throne, as the triumphant, victorious one. So all the promises of God are yes, and they are amen. Abraham knew this, and he really is an exemplar for us and for our faith. And he knew that God will surely provide. God will see us through to the end because he is faithful. He will provide. And not only will he provide, but he has provided through Christ. This is the beauty of this passage, that there is no tension. God is not a covenant breaker. He is the one who upholds the covenant perfectly. Even if it seems crazy at first, when you first read it, of oh, sacrifice your son, God upholds his covenant. He is the one that will accomplish it, and only him. And that is what we can rest in and trust as we receive and trust in Christ, our Savior. So let us pray now and rejoice in our great high priest and our lovely Savior and Lamb who died for our sins. Let us pray.